Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I love the preacher that had a guest preacher. Um, I love the story of the preacher that had a guest preacher that he'd never heard before, but somebody in the church recommended, Pastor, you've got to have him come. He's going to be here or something, asking to preach. So the old preacher decided to go ahead and have him preach, so he'd never heard him. And on the night he introduced him, he said, well, uh, you've never heard, most of you have never heard this man preach. I've never heard him preach. If he's any good, let's hear him. If he's not, let's get it over with. So <laughs> I kind of like those kind of introductions. That's good. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you for that good singing. Don't you enjoy that? Uh, good night. I love it. See a husband and wife singing together, and uh, they're not. Well, how about that? But uh, if they were, that'd really be neat, I guess. But I don't know what to say. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, what do you think about a husband and wife singing together? I remember the first time Sandra and I sang together at church. And the reason I remembered it was the last time we sang together in church. Okay, well, anyway, I enjoyed it. Praise the Lord. Aren't you glad you're not married to that guy? Yeah, it's, it's, amen. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny because as I told the pastor today, I've got to make a phone call where I'm going, or I told my wife, or I think I was telling the pastor, I've got to make a phone call a uh, place I'm going soon to make sure I don't stick my foot in my mouth. And, and then I said, which I never do anyway, so what do I do tonight? First thing, right off the, out of the gate. All right, anyway, you know what our text is, the Gospel of John chapter 4. And uh, we're going to read here in just a little bit, but I'll give you time to find <clears throat> the Gospel of John and chapter number four, and then I want to just uh, talk to you just a minute, and then we'll stand up and read. Maybe some of you have read the book. It's called Unbroken. It's about a man that um, was a prospect, they figured a great prospect to run in the Olympics, the kind of prospect that you could expect a gold medal. And he never made it to the Olympics because he went into the service and served in the United States Air Force in World War II. And uh, his plane was shot down over the Pacific and he and another man survived for 60 days in a life raft on the water. Then he was taken in by the Japanese and spent three years in a prison camp being tortured and a miserable three years there. His name was Louis Zamperini. And uh, when he finally was released from the Japanese prison camp, he came back uh, to the US and he lived in California, married a young lady and uh, then full of bitterness and bad memories and trauma, turned to liquor, was angry, became a very hostile and a very bitter man. With his marriage uh, in great distress, almost to lose his marriage, his wife uh, coerced him into going to an evangelistic crusade that was taking place in Los Angeles 70 years ago, right about now. 
And so he reluctantly went to the meeting, afterwards cursed his wife for taking him to such a service where the man would confront uh, him and everyone else about their sin and their need of salvation and Jesus Christ. And he was angry, cursed his wife and threatened her and all kinds of things, but went back the next night and the next. And finally, under the conviction of sin, he got saved and the bitterness was gone. To make it short, his whole life was changed. Completely, completely. He only died about three or four years ago and had a wonderful testimony uh, for the Lord all that time. Um, in a few weeks, a little later in the fall, I'll be going to, my wife and I'll be going to St. Joseph, Missouri, God willing, and I'll preach there at the Riverside Baptist Church in a meeting for a man that's a very dear friend, raised right up the road from where uh, Brother Dan, your dad, uh, where he just moved from. That's where he was raised. His name is Bill Marshall. And Brother Bill Marshall uh, was raised up the road. His dad was the broken home. His dad would take him to the bars when he was eight and nine years old, would actually fill him full of beer and let him stagger around and entertain his buddies at the bar. Brother Bill led that kind of life growing up. And needless to say, in his teenage years then, he was addicted to alcohol and to drugs and was making a mess of his life, decided to clean up. And in that cleanup time, he married a young lady. And, and then he went right back to the drugs and so forth. And he was about to lose his marriage and his children. They'd had two children by then. And he was about to lose it all. And a fellow at work uh, talked to him about his sin, his life, and about Jesus and salvation. And he got saved. And his life just changed completely, changed completely. For years he was an evangelist and then he's pastored the last, I suppose, 10 to 15 years at uh, the Riverside Baptist Church in St. Joe, Missouri. Just a complete, incredible change. There's a man I know in Florida. His name is Paul Hulk, H-A-U-L-K. He was a man that uh, spent a good amount of time in prison until his drug trafficking and drug addiction uh, got him in trouble on the federal level and he was sentenced to a long prison term. And while he was in prison full of hate and full of bitterness and still trying to pull the strings and satisfy his drug cravings and manipulate uh, things there in prison, somebody asked him to come to one of the services. Well, why would I go to one of the services? What did they even talk about there when the chaplain would come? And he said, well, he gave him the gospel. And uh, Phil, uh, Paul Holt's re response to that was, I'll believe that stuff when pigs fly. He'd heard that saying before. And he said, I'll believe it when pigs fly. And so he finally relented and went to the service. An old fashioned preacher was preaching and he preached out of Mark chapter 5 where the demon possessed, uh, the demons cried out and asked that they be cast into the herd of swine in the river. And they went down a steep place in the river. And the way the colorful preacher uh, preached it, they went over this cliff and 
flew into the river and drowned there full of the demons that were in the man. And when he heard that sermon, he said, I said I'll believe when pigs fly. And they did fly. And he talked to the preacher and he got saved. He's got a wonderful book that's being used in prisons all around called When Pigs Fly. And it's his own testimony of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But not just the fact he's saved from hell, he completely changed his life. Completely. Incredible. There was one time a Pharisee, highly educated, highly trained, hated the gospel of Jesus, hated those that believed in the gospel of this Jesus of Nazareth. And as a matter of fact, he had in his satchel, he had authority from the chief priests and the rulers and the leaders to go and persecute, uh, to persecute the saints and to hail men and women is the biblical term and to commit them to prison and to make their life miserable. And he was on his way to Damascus. And there, you know the story, he met Jesus. And Jesus confronted him about himself and about his sin and about his self-righteousness. And he believed in Jesus. And oh my, was there ever a change? We're reading about a woman that came out of the city of Sychar. She was a Samaritan. Uh, you know by now, you knew before this week. She had five husbands, was now living with a man that was not her husband, and Jesus encountered her there at the well called Jacob's Well outside of Sychar. Let's stand and read beginning in verse 27, shall we? If you need to remain seated for physical reasons, that's certainly no problem. Verse 27, And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he had talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What speak, uh, seekest thou? Or neither did they say to Jesus, Why talkest thou with her? I mentioned, you understand, everything about this was unusual that she would be there at the noon hour, that Jesus, a Jew, would be there, period, let alone willing to talk to a woman, let alone talking to a Samaritan woman, not even allowing for the kind of woman that she was. And that's why it says here that no man said anything. Even Peter didn't have anything to say here. And, and it says in verse 27, no one said what seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Can I have your attention? She drank. Somebody say amen, please. She drank. He offered her the living water. She drank it. Amen. Guess what we're noticing here? A radical change <laughs> has come over this woman. As she hightails it into the city and is crying out and saying, 
Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Messiah, the anointed one? All the Samaritans knew that the Jews expected an ultimate Messiah, a deliverer, a savior, the anointed one, of whom the prophets prophesied. And she's telling them, I met him. <laughs> I know him. And look in verse number 30. Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Now, if you would, um, drop down to verse number 40. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. Now, we're going to cover more of this tomorrow night. And he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman, now we, now we believe, not because of thy saying. They wanted her to be clear on that kind of woman she had been. Besides that, she was a woman. Women that have trouble in existence in this culture would have never made it in that culture. Well, that went over big, but it's the truth. It's, it really is the truth, all right? So it says, and many more believe because, and they said, now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The title of the sermon tonight is very simple. One word, changed. Changed. This woman <laughs> was changed. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to have time to preach about it. But so were the disciples. There was a lot going on here. He was discipling his disciples, you know. And, and not only that, the men, of, uh, the men of Sychar, many of them were changed. Many of them were changed. So the title of the sermon is simply Changed. Father, we are thankful tonight for the privilege, the blessing it is to assemble together in this place. And we are thankful, O oh God. We are thankful for the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And that your son Jesus, sure, he came to save us from our sin, from the condemnation of sin, from the penalty of sin, from hell. We're thankful for that. But this same saving Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. I want to say thank you that our salvation did not deliver us just from the dread of hell, but also saved us from a wasted life, a frustrating life, an empty life, a vain life. Oh, God, we are thankful for the difference Jesus makes in our life. I pray that you would help us now to give attention uh, to thy word, and might we be helped and challenged by it, by the working of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Let me give you a concept. <clears throat> that is totally, absolutely foreign to the Bible. And that is 
that Jesus can enter a person's life and no change occur. That, that is a concept that is totally foreign to the Bible. Well, I, I know, but they did get saved. They did get saved. Let me give you a concept that is totally foreign to the Bible. That Jesus would come into a person's life in salvation and no changes are made. That concept is totally foreign to the Word of God and yet commonly accepted among contemporary quote-unquote Christianity. All we got to do is check it out. Publicans were changed. Matthew, Zacchaeus, the woman of Samaria, we're going to talk about her, changed. The woman taken in adultery, changed. Uh, the demoniac, changed. Saul of Tarsus, changed. <laughs> I'm just saying, it doesn't matter who it is. When Jesus enters into that individual's life, when, they, uh, when he has believed upon her, when they have drunk of the living water, changes take place. And to say that someone could be saved and Jesus could come into their life, that is even more ridiculous than somebody saying something like this. Uh, there is a hurricane that has hit uh, through the Gulf Coast into uh, New Orleans. And uh, the name of the hurricane is Katrina uh, with some of the most uh, vicious winds and fierce storm that we've ever known, but everything's normal in New Orleans. Somebody said, that's absurd, right? It'd be like the E5 tornado that came in Oklahoma in the year of 1999. And it came through measuring, since there has been the ability to measure wind speed and storm, the highest wind uh, speed ever measured on planet Earth. And this tornado that started southwest of Oklahoma City came through southwest Oklahoma City into southeast Oklahoma City through more Oklahoma and was on the ground for over 70 miles, killed 42 people, and just left a, a, a path of devastation. What if somebody said this dynamic tornado came through on the ground for 70 miles, but everything's normal around here? Nothing was normal. That would be absurd to think it was normal. Wouldn't it? Certainly. My birthday was just last week, August the 5th. And uh, uh, I was born in 1945. Yes, I'm 77 years old. Don't gasp, please. I'm, I'm very sensitive about this issue. But anyway, uh, I, I was actually born August 5th, 1945. And on August the 6th is when they dropped the atom bomb on Hiroshima. The only thing is, it was the 6th of August when that happened. In Japan, it was still the 5th of August here. And what if somebody said they have dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, but so far life is going on as usual? Now, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? But I'm giving you something even more ridiculous. I said even more ridiculous, that the eternal Son of the living God, he in whom all things consist, he who his Father by him spoke into existence everything that is. Amen. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same as in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, without Him was not anything made that was made. God, by Jesus Christ, spoke into existence everything that it is. We're talking about the eternal Son of the living God. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, Jesus said. And to think that Jesus could come into the life of an individual and no changes be made is as ridiculous as the examples I've given before and many more we could give. It's even more ridiculous. Absolutely. This woman was changed. Somebody says, how was she changed? Well, look down in verse number 31. Verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed unto him, saying, Master, eat. That's not the verse to look at. I got distracted by on my tie here. So look down at verse number 27. And when his disciples came, notice now in verse 28. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men. So a couple of changes that take place here. One the lady was so focused upon the fact that she had taken the drink of this living water and that Jesus was now her Savior, her sins were forgiven, that all of a sudden she lost her focus on the mundane and the usual business of life, and it was all about Jesus Christ. It was there. And I know we could go, and I, I've heard preachers to make a big deal out of it, that she left that water pot. And I'm not going to make a big thing about that because she could always come back, and no doubt she did, come back and get water later. It's not like from this time on she never had to have the water from that well again. So I'm not trying to be ridiculous about it. But all of a sudden we can see there is a massive shift in what is important to her. There's a massive shift in what really matters in her life. And what mattered in her life was just her existence. Come on, we talked about the religion that left her empty and dead. We talked about relationships that left her disappointed and probably embittered even, one after another after another. And everything that she had sought for, it came up to be a dead-end road. There could be no satisfaction. There could be no peace. There could be no contentment. There could be no joy. And in just a matter of moments, when she had drunk of that living water, everything has changed and the water didn't matter anymore. And the Monday mundane issues of life were all behind her, and she headed for the city. Can you see the water pot laying here? And, you know, we're not talking about a little pot. We're talking about those big honkers that she would put on her shoulder and that in some countries the women put them on their head. We're talking about a good amount of water. They didn't want to go back and forth 14 times and they would carry a good amount of water. And she put it down. I can just see the water pot lying there. Probably the water all spilled out. And she is on her way to the city. And when she goes into the city, here's a change for you. She went in to get the attention of the men of the city. Now, generally, a woman that's had five marriages probably is not thinking higher and higher of manhood. Somebody help me, please. Probably somebody that's been in as many bitter, sad, sick, failing relationships as she's been with men probably has an attitude about men. Uh, it might be born in the daughters of Eve anyway, but her, this has been nurtured along because of the disappointment and the failures in these marriages, probably the abuse that she has taken along the way. And all of a sudden she goes in to this city 
where she would avoid people. That's why she was coming out there at the noon hour, where she would avoid any attention because even in a place like Sychar that really wasn't known for godliness, holiness, purity, and all of that, but even there, she was of the low life and a place where she would normally try uh, to not cause attention to herself or to bring any attention to herself. Now she goes into the city and she can't contain herself. And she goes in crying to the men of the city, come, see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Come see him. You know why I think she said come see him? Because she knew she just went in and told her story. They're going to blow it off. There's no doubt they're going to blow it off. But she didn't expect them to believe it because she said it. She said come and see for yourself. Come on, we know that was used later for others that would come uh, to Jesus Christ. And you just need to come and see for yourself. And she goes into the city and she announces to the men. I don't know if any of us really have a way of knowing how outlandish this kind of behavior would have been considered to her people in her day. We've not lived in that kind of culture. We've not known that kind of thinking or mentality that they had. But I'm just telling she's breaking all the rules when she comes into that city. Hold on just a second. And uh, if they paid attention to her, uh, I'm almost certain, what do you think? I'm almost certain there were some changes that were quite obvious for them to give her any attention. Quite obvious. What do you think her countenance was like on the way out to that well? slithering through the streets, trying to avoid attention, knowing that men that looked upon her, looked upon her with scorn, knowing that the women that would see her had disdain for her, knowing that she was of the low life. Well, what do you think her countenance was like when she got to that well? What do you think she was looking? I'm talking about her countenance, her spirit, her attitude. What do you think that was like? When do you think is the last time she might have smiled or when she might have felt a sense of worth and meaning uh, besides being used by men and being abused in relationships. When do you think the last time she had a happy and free spirit about her? When do you think the last time that was? I'm sure we could let our imagination go and not even come close to the understanding the last time that she had any sense of that, if she ever had any sense of that. But now all of a sudden, having met Jesus and having drunk of the living water and have believed in him, and Jesus is now very much in her life, she goes to that city. And the men, when they heard her crying and calling, they probably thought at first, oh, her, it's her. And then they looked at her. Wait a minute. That's, I've never seen that countenance on her. They probably saw, can I say it this way? I guess I can. I'm doing the preaching. They saw the spring in her step. Uh, they saw as spirit, they saw an attitude that they had never seen in her. Uh, they saw some freedom they had never seen in her. Uh, they saw joy that they had never seen in her. Come, see a man that told me all that ever I did. Well, all that she ever did really wasn't a whole lot of good things to talk about. So something really great has gone on because she has had her sin confronted and she has had her sin forgiven and everything about her has changed else the men of the city would have never given attention to her. Everything was changed my soul. And she goes in speaking of Christ. Can you imagine the suspicion that was there? I was talking about this Paul Hulk. In talking to them, I was preaching in Wesley Chapel, Florida, and he's a member of the Faith Baptist Church there. 
and I got acquainted with him better. I'd met him before, but didn't know all the story. And then I got the book and read the book. It's just wonderful. And so I was talking to him uh, about this, and Paul Hulk was, Hulk was saying that when he came to know Christ in prison, then people started scoffing other prisoners, mocking, saying, yeah, how long is this going to last? Come on, because they knew his addiction. They knew his drug trafficking. They knew the wrong stuff that he was pulling off while he was in prison. So you went and got religion. That's the way they would say it in, in the prison, according to him. So you got religion. Yeah, we've seen people get religion in here before. Sure, he's in a federal pen, friend. Sure, we've seen people get religion before. Sure, we've seen people get religion. But he said, Brother Sam, it wasn't until a, 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 what very long of a time till all that suspicion was gone. Because it wasn't just that I wasn't in the drug and the mean and the wicked and the violations uh, that I'd been committing. It wasn't that. It was that I had the joy of the Lord in my heart. I had the freedom and the forgiveness of, the, of sin and the burden of sin was lifted and the guilt of sin was lifted and the condemnation. No wonder the Apostle Paul wrote, he would know something about this. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Jesus Christ. And they say that if we understood it, it, it the intent would be that now there is no, 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 absolutely no condemnation to them which are in Jesus Christ. Well, what happened to Paul happened to her. And when she went into that city, they knew, though they might have at first been suspicious, something's different about this woman. Very different about this woman. Yeah. Same when Louis Zamperini got saved. Oh, sure, so you're going to the meeting, so you got religion. The pastor that I work for, I mentioned to your pastor, Seven, for seven years after I got out of Bible college, my wife and I got married, finished our last year of Bible college, and went right to work in the First Baptist Church of Dell City, Oklahoma. The man was a childhood hero of mine. He came from my hometown. My hometown's Perry, Oklahoma. It's right up the Interstate 35 from Oklahoma City, about 60 miles. Town of about 5,000 people. That's where he was from. When he was 26 years old, he got his life and his world shaken. He would have been, uh, the, the way some of the people described him, he was the Al Capone of our town. If some of you recognize the name Al, he was a, he was a thug. He was an absolute thug. There was a, a, a chief of police in, in uh, our little hometown of Perry that was a Church of Christ man, and he had a heart for this fatherless boy, this Jones boy that was raised up there in Perry. And he, and he knew his mother because she was a part of the church, and he, he respected his mother and the effort that she put in to try to raise her children and so forth. But this Jones boy, he was just completely wild. The chief of police, when he got, Jones got to be about 22, 3 years old, he hired him to be a policeman in that town. So he was a policeman in the daytime. And then he ran whiskey up to Kansas at night. He's a bootlegger and a gambler and a fighter, a brawler. He was bad. He hurt people. <laughs> he hurt people real bad. He was tough and he was mean. And I can remember as a kid, he was an acquaintance of the man that became my brother-in-law. And I remember hearing the name and I thought, oh boy, it's Roy Jones. And it would be about like hearing some of the gangsters or some of the thugs that would be known in some of the big areas and all of that kind of thing. That's what he was in our town. But when his mother died, something happened. And he, and, and he started having this emptiness in his soul and in his life and his grief. And he went down from Perry, our hometown, to Oklahoma City to visit some of his buddies that lived on Skid Row. 
They, they were really drunkards, and that's where they lived, down on Skid Homeless and down on Skid Row. He went down to visit some of them. When he's visiting one of them, he walked by this place that was called a mission, and he heard this man in there preaching his heart out. I mean, just getting with it. And so he kind of stopped. He stopped one of his buddies. He said, what in the world's going on there? And he looked in there, and here's this big old tall, heavy-set preacher. He's described him to me a hundred times. And he said he was in there, and man, he was pounding on that pulpit, and he was preaching away. Then he'd stop, and his daughter would read the Scripture, and he'd preach some more. Then she would read. He couldn't read. The man didn't even know how to read. And his daughter would do the reading, and he would preach. He was so taken aback by that. And so the next night, he decided, I'm going to go down there and see if he's still doing that. Went down there the next night, and he kind of stepped into where he could hear what was going on. And he heard the message. He began to get under conviction of his sin. And that big old preacher that couldn't read led him to Christ that night. And he got saved. I'm, I'm talking about Jonesy. That's what a lot of people called him too. He got saved. He trusted Christ. And after he got saved, he ran into some people that said, well, you, you, you feel like you're called to preach? He said, people have to know. My friends have to know about this. And yes, I believe I'm called to preach. He came down here to the Norris Seminary back in those days. Went to school down there. Between, in the summer, between the semesters, Having just found out where the book of Genesis was, he decided he needed to come to our hometown and preach that summer. Because all the people that he had run with and all the people that he had afflicted pain upon, all the people of that little hometown, oh, there were churches there, but even in the early 1950s, most of them were dead in a graveyard. And even the church that I had been a part of, where I got saved, was starting to make left-hand turns in the 1950s. Come on, they got off on the Bible version in the middle of the 1950s, ladies and gentlemen. And it was going dead in a graveyard. And the passion for souls, it just wasn't there anymore. And the a passion to preach the gospel and do the work of the gospel and spread the gospel around. No, it wasn't there anymore. It became more like a social club, like the rest of the organized churches in town. And, and this man came back to the courthouse part. The reason it's so special to us is my wife's grandpa was in one of those dead churches and he'd had enough. And he said, if there's ever an independent Baptist church in this town, I'll be a part of it. My dad was chairman of the deacons of the sermon, uh, Southern Baptist Church. My dad says, if there's an ever an independent Baptist church in this town, I'll be a part of it. Her grandpa then advertised these courthouse revival meetings going to be preached by Jones. Oh, man, people said, Jones is preaching? He's going to come here and preach? Her grandpa would ride around the square. He ran a rural mail route when he got done. Put speakers on his car and ride around our town square in about 1956, somewhere right in there, 55. And he'd put these speakers on his car. Come to the revival meeting. Hear Roy Jones preach. And on and on he went. And we advertised, and they, or he advertised, and they came. And I'm telling you, that night when he started the revival meeting, I remember my dad saying it was in uh, late July, early August. I remember my, we were still doing farm work, and I remember my dad saying, if that man's preaching, we're going to go check it out. And for farmer's sake, they didn't start till 8 o'clock at night. We get the chores done, and we go in and hear five, six hundred people sitting out there on lawn chairs and on blankets and such as that. And he would stand under this pavilion right by the courthouse in the town square, and they had the speaker system as good as they could get it, and he got up there and preached. Literally, I'm just saying. Here's a man that found out where the book of Genesis was about 16 months ago, and he's up there trying to preach. I have no idea about his theology. 
I had no idea, but I knew that everybody knew that he is different. And everybody knew how he got different. Jesus came into his life, and he would stand there and preach. Do you know what happened? Around the town square, there were some of his old cronies that weren't about to go sit in that crowd. Oh, no, they're not going to get that close. Uh-uh. No, and, but they would stand around the beer joints. There's one on each side of the square. There was at least one bar from the smokehouse over on the uh, northeast corner there to the one right in the south side by the bowling alley on the east side of the square. And the one over to the south side, just up the road from uh, south side drug there for a little bit, one over on the east side. And guys would stand outside of those bars and here's Jonesy's preaching over there. And they'd listen to the man preach. <laughs> standing outside those bars, cussing and smoking cigars and drinking their beer, but they were still hearing what they needed to hear. Somebody help me, please. Man, these were some great days. And he preached five or 600 people out there in that park. It was amazing sitting out there listening. People started getting saved and people got sa- getting saved. And more people got saved. He came back the next year and he came back the next year and he came back the next year. And the man that led the singing for him used to lead the singing for Earl Oldham. He was his song leader down there. His name was Dan Tidwell. And he's the one that came and led the singing, sang the specials. I remember as a kid going up to him when I was eight years old. And I said to him, could you, I scared out of my mind, talking to these great men of God, you know, shaking hands with Jones and going up to Brother Tidwell and saying, could you sing Ship Ahoy again? Well, he learned my name. He said, Sam, uh, I just sang that last night. I know, but I'd sure like to hear Ship Ahoy again. And sure enough, if you'd have time at the end of the service, the pastor would, or Jones would say to him, sing something, Brother Dan, will be dismissed. Brother Dan would get up there and sing Ship Ahoy again. Oh, man, it was awesome. It was so good. And after two or three years of that, well, people got saved. And there wasn't a church in town that had the kind of fire, the kind of zeal, the kind of enthusiasm, the kind of passion that was displayed there. And that song leader came back to our town and started the church that we met in and got married in, that I got called to preach in. Wow. Well, the whole point is, what a change. What a change. He went from there to Dell City, Oklahoma. Had some sad ending to it, but it doesn't take away what transpired before. But he pastored there for 36 years. I worked for him for seven years uh, there in that church. Started out in the ministry. Gave me my first opportunity to preach from a man that met Jesus. What a change. You ought to heard the skeptics in town. It ain't going to last. He'd been preaching 20 years, and there was still suspicion. It ain't going to last. It ain't going to last. It's not going to last. And he went on preached revivals all over the United States and many, many, many in the state of Texas, many in this area, right down here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I'm just saying, but the suspicion was there. It ain't going to last. No, that won't last. Can you imagine the suspicion that was there when this woman went into the city of Sychar and began to say to the men, come, see a man that told me all things that ever I did. I'm just saying there was a drastic, incredible change that took place in her life. When Bill Marshall got saved, all the cronies and all the friends said, <laughs> Okay, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. But not a one of them believed that he would still be trying to live for the Lord a year later, much less all these years later. Yeah. Suspicion was everywhere. Well, why did she even have a message? Because Jesus was real in her life. 
Excuse me just a second. This wasn't the turning over of a new leaf in her life. Excuse me just a second. She didn't say, I'm going to turn over a new leaf in my life. I'm going to try something different in my life. I'm going to try to discipline myself. I'm going to do this myself. No, no. She drank the living water. The change took place. And she, she went to town. And the men of Sychar saw the change. And they went out to see Do you remember that in your life? How did Jesus change your life? Um, I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm not trying to accuse anybody of anything. But I don't mind asking the question that ought to be answered. What change did Jesus make in your life? And if I'm asking it like, yeah, you haven't changed, I, I don't even know. So I'm, I'm not accusing anybody. Sure gets quiet at times like this. And I, but I, I'm, I'm not in a position to accuse anybody of anything. But what kind of, but it is a fair question. Did you ever talk to somebody and say, are you saved? Well, yeah, I'm saved. And you wonder, if you're really saved, why are you mad about it? It looks like you'd be happy to talk about it instead of getting mad for somebody about asking you about your salvation. And, and I, I kind of feel that way about these kind of things. If Jesus is real in our life, and if he really came into our life, then we ought to be, we ought, we ought not to mind anybody saying, what kind of change did he make in your life? Now, I made the confession to you the other day, I believe I did, that I got saved when I was six years old. So I didn't have a big rap sheet like Jonesy had. You understand what I'm saying? I didn't have anything like this woman had in my life. I, I didn't, well, you, you understand. I mean, if you were saved at a very young age, so you didn't have anything. But I can look back and remember a changes that took place in my life in relation to the peace that I had with God. I was afraid of hell. Oh, people shouldn't have to be, shouldn't be saved because they're afraid of hell. I was. Our preacher preached about it two Sundays in a row. He was in a day and time. He didn't know you shouldn't do that. So he did. He preached on hell two Sunday mornings in a row. And the second Sunday was primarily what Jesus did to keep a boy like me out of hell. And it was the first time I recognized that not only is there a hell, I'm going there the way I am right now. That's the first time I'd ever realized that. And boy, that made a difference. And I remember getting saved, and after I got saved, that was one change that was made. And I don't know, I don't remember even all the details. But the, the, the fact that that changed, and that the peace of God replaced fear of death and fear of eternity, and it was, <laughs> it was replaced by joy and gladness and peace and salvation. I do remember that. I sure do. But I've noticed also that if you really know Jesus, it's not like you change then. It's like he is in the constant process of making changes in our walk, in our life, that he might accomplish his purpose in us. Romans chapter 8, that we might be shaped or conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You know that verse, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Oh, isn't that a wonderful verse? Well, yeah, it's a wonderful verse. But so is what follows. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Oh, don't talk predestination. It's too late. 
We got to. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. God predetermined something upon you like he did upon me and everybody else that gets saved. And that is, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And now I've been saved, let me see, I'm seven, I've been saved 71 years and he is still making changes in my life. So if somebody came up to you and said, excuse me, I'm just talking to people about the Lord, I want to know, do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Have you been saved? Did you drink of the living water? Did you receive Him? Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, I have. What changes did He make in your life? <clears throat> you would have an answer, I should hope. But you and I both know if you try to do any soul winning, you're going to meet people all the time that got saved sometime back there. But, you know, and they kind of went on with their life and nothing changed. What about that? Uh, I, I don't, yeah, I've just got to go ahead and do this. And not everybody that's experienced that is necessarily completely out of church and never occupies a church chair or church pew. Some occupy a place in the church chair and the church pew for a long, long time. Some even have their name on the church roll and never change. How do you explain that? If I tried to explain to you how that E5 tornado, EF5 tornado came into Oklahoma City and nothing changed, I'd have a chore there, wouldn't I? Because it did change. We had members that lost homes. It was devastating. It was, it was incredible. And of course, those kind of things are happening all over. How, how do you explain that? And if the dynamic of the eternal Son of God who, I was going to read in 1 Corinthians 1, we won't, but who, Jesus Christ, we preach Christ, who is the power of God. Jesus is the power of God. Then if he is in us, then what if somebody asks you, exactly what changes did he make in your life? I'm sure you, well, what about people that profess uh, vehemently that they have believed in Jesus and received the gospel but 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 how do you uh, how do you explain that well I've jotted down a couple of things they're going to sound rather sarcastic probably because they are but maybe there was no change uh, because well uh, I was uh, maybe maybe you were so good you didn't need to change now, my wife and I have this thing going. And when I call her out on something, here's, here's been her standard answer. I didn't do that before I met you. I wasn't that way till we got married. I came to the conclusion if she'd have never met me, she might not even had to get saved. Because, I mean, she was there. <laughs> yeah. Maybe was a, could it be that a person is so good that uh, Jesus actually came in, but there were no changes to make? 
that, that isn't the testimony of the Word of God about any of us. I said, that's not the testimony of God's Word about any of us. There's none that doeth good. That, no, not one. There is none righteous. No, not one. We have all gone out of the way. We've all gone astray. We've all sinned against God. Come on, we understand that. So if somebody says, I've received Jesus, but there has been no change in the life, how do you explain that? Or maybe he saved some people and didn't change them because he didn't want the Christian life to look like the standard is so high that you could never achieve it. So he left some people to be carnal and hateful and bitter and mean and liars and everything else to keep that kind of thing in the church so it wouldn't set a standard so high that nobody would feel like they could. Oh yeah, that's, isn't that silly? Of course it is. It could be Jesus never came in. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. In other words, changing from your will to his will. Excuse me here just a second. Let me remind you of something. We all know the verse, don't we? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Well, Brother Sam, I can't believe you haven't used that already. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Oh, no, I haven't forgotten. I love that passage. In fact, I love what's right before there. Because it starts out in verse number 14, and Paul said, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. If Jesus died for all, then everybody was spiritually dead. We thus judge that if one died for all, then we're undead. And, and if it, 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 the love of Christ constrained us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died, that we which live should not henceforth live unto ourselves, but unto him who died for us. Now that's quite a change. When you quit living your life for you, when you get the hands off the steering wheel of your life and the controls of your life and you turn them over to him now that's quite a change right there when we no longer live unto ourselves but we live unto him who died for us and rose again from the dead and that is the authority by which we are to live unto him is because he died for our sins we are under the burden and the condemnation of our sin without Jesus Christ. And Jesus paid for our sin. And when we receive that forgiveness, how could he who died for us not become the one that we live unto instead of living unto ourselves? Do you know what is hindering most churches? I, I, I know I'm talking about Methodists and Protestants and the liberal element out there, I'm talking about authentic, what, what should be known as authentic New Testament churches. You know what's hindering most of them? Utter, absolute selfishness. Self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. One of the basic things Jesus taught about discipleship. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
And most churches that I see, and I, I'm not an expert on anything, but I've been around, I've tried to remain a student. I try to learn as I go about all over the country. And I've had, I shared with the workers the other night, I've had the wonderful privilege over the years of preaching in just, just shy of 600 churches around the country. And that may not sound like a lot, but you gotta, you gotta hump it up. And many of them I've been in many times. And, and I'm just saying to you, I've tried to learn, I've tried to observe. I went to three years of Bible college I told the dean, I'm going to go for the fourth year. He looked at me and said, you're not fourth year material. So I didn't go the fourth year. And so I, people introduced me as Dr. Davison. If the people that I went to school under heard me called doctor, they'd have a fit and say, whoever doctored that dude, I'm telling you what, somebody is messed up right there. I'm no doctor, don't claim to be a doctor, don't claim to be anything. But I started to be, remain a student. I'm a learner. You're a teacher, you're the preacher. I'm a student. I'm a disciple. I still have discipleship to learn. He's still working in my life. There are changes that he has worked in my life. My wife and I, we can sit down and talk to you about what's happened in our lives in the last two years, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm just telling you right now, what I observe in going around in church after church after church is most churches aren't stuck in the mud because of doctrine. Most of them aren't stuck in the mud because they don't know what version to use. Most of them aren't stuck in the mud because there's not opportunity to reach people. Most are stuck in the mud because there are people that are totally self-focused. And that's wicked. There, can I throw something out here for you to think about? Try to name something more unlike Jesus than selfishness. Well, I think, well, me, well, I, well, me, I, me, my, I. Well, I wish, or well, why didn't I, I, nobody asked me, I, me, uh-uh. Uh, 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 help me, Lord. Think for yourself of one thing more unlike Jesus than self-centeredness. Oh, there's a lot of things unlike Jesus. Oh, I, I, I agree. Wickedness, ungodliness, immorality. It's all unlike Jesus. Is it more unlike Jesus than selfishness who came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father which sent him and made it known throughout his public life and ministry that he is not here to fulfill his own will? I am not speaking my words, but the words the Father gives me. I'm not doing my works, but the works the Father gives me. If Jesus was anything, and he was everything, but if he was anything, he was selfless. Has he worked on that in your life? Or what is it that keeps one from being an all-out disciple of Jesus? Behind every sin is pride. Uh, and I'll invite anybody to check that out, too. Behind every sin is pride. Behind every contention is pride. So says the wise one in the book of Proverbs. And what is pride if it's not the Luciferian mentality of I? I. Go read Isaiah 14 for yourself. I. I will be like the Most High. I will set 
myself above the stars of God. I, I meet the focus on me. How can Jesus live in us? And we're focused on ourselves. How does that work? Is he in you? This is an accusation to anybody. It's a fair question. It's always a fair question. But Paul said, let a man examine himself, whether he be in the faith. Didn't he? And I'm not taking that out of context either. Let a man examine himself, whether he be in the faith. And uh, Peter put it this way, make your calling and election sure. What about when we were in Bible college and I married this sweet little woman over here and we're in Bible college our first year and Brother Raymond Tracy is our pastor. And we're going to Bible college and they thing, you know, I, she's got all kinds of stress and issues and come to find out she doesn't think she's saved. Then she thought she was and then she thought she wasn't. Went through that for the whole year, a good part of the year, if not the whole year, of our first year of marriage in Bible college. She was wrestling. She came out of a Camelite background and there wasn't this sense of security there nor the clearness of the gospel and such as that. Oh, and man, oh man, our poor pastor. Started out in the ministry, like I told you a while ago, we went a whole year wearing the ministry and she's there again. Doesn't know if she's saved. Took a bunch of people to youth camp and in uh, that year of 1969, at uh, Singing Hills Youth Camp outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico, Brother Bill Dow Sr. was preaching. And as he preached to probably 150, 200, we had about 100 people there from our church, and maybe there was 200 people there, and he preached like he was standing before the masses, a powerful preacher of the Word of God. She fell under conviction and got saved. You think it made a difference in her life? Sure, it made a difference in her life. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. I pastored Southwest Baptist Church for 20 years. In 20 years, without any of this preaching to try to get people to really think about it, just in, in 20 years, I saw three waves come through our church, Pastor, where a church member got saved and then another church member got saved and always doing is having a Southern Gospel Jubilee on a Friday night and had a bunch of singing. My soul, we had a time. And a lady came out uh, walking right down here and went down to get saved. And, and we're all looking at her. She what? Why well, everyone of us that knew her thought she was saved. And then that next Sunday morning came Dee out of the choir and she got saved. I cannot stand preaching that tries to make people doubt their salvation so as to try to get results at the altar. I don't believe in that. I wouldn't ever do that on purpose. I, I can't stand it. But neither are we serious if we're not able to give an answer for the faith that is in us and make our calling and election sure. And if Jesus is not making the necessary changes in our life for us to be like Jesus, then there has to be an answer why. It is either gross selfishness and stubbornness and pride, or maybe he's not even there. Yeah. 
That's right. You know what happened to me a few years ago, preacher? I, I had a, a situation where I had a, a nemesis in the church. And uh, Southwest, a wonderful congregation there. But there was a, a, a gentleman that, you know, for a, a long time it seemed like, I may be overstating here just a little bit, but way too many Monday mornings I'd receive an email. Never a, con, never a front, you know, one-on-one, face-to-face deal, an email. Never was it, thank God for the preaching of the word, thank God for this or that. Nope, nope, I messed up again. I was wrong again, you know, over and over. Oh, man. And I used to uh, write out, I, I never sent emails, I've never even owned a computer. And so, but I'd write out. And I was going to give it to the secretary and have her email him back. And most of them I wound up writing them out, writing them out, and then tearing them up and throwing them in the trash and just moving on. And uh, this went on and on on for years. <laughs> and I remember taking this thing to God. It was, it was eating my lunch because the man meant something to me in several capacities. And so uh, I, I, it just it ate me up. I had a few talks with him face to face, made him come in. I'd sit down and talk to him, and it'd be okay for a week or two. We're right back at it. And I'll tell you, I'm so glad he held out. You know why? Because I got so desperate, I gave it completely to God and said, God, help me to love this man. I'm frustrated. I'd like to set him straight. I'd like to take him before the church. <laughs> Not everybody enjoyed that one, but anyway. <laughs> I, 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 and, and I said, God, please help me. Love those that despise you. Love those that hate you. I mean, this is basic Sermon on the Mount teaching stuff. And I asked him. And one of the greatest victories in my life was to learn to love not just him, but people that I knew had no use for me whatsoever. But learn to love them. That's one of the greatest victories I ever experienced in my life as a believer was to love people. Let's see, how should we say this? Like Jesus loves us. Amen. Like we're deserving of his love. Like we've ever earned it. Like we've always kept our promises to him. And to learn to love somebody else, that's a change he brought in my life. A change. Feels wonderful. Well, you did good, Brother Sam. You wasn't listening, was you? Jesus made that change in my life. No. So, is he changing your life? And, and if, if, if he is, then you ought to rejoice about it and say amen, thank God. I know you want to stand up here and say, yes, he's changing my... I don't, I'm not expecting people to stand up and shout it out. I'm just saying, if, he, if you recognize his working in your life and those changes are still being made, which is another way of saying you're growing in the Lord, you're growing in Christ's likeness. I mean, Paul was getting very towards the end of his life when he wrote the book of Philippians and he wasn't there yet. I'm talking about the apostle Paul. He said, I am an attained... I haven't reached it. 
I'm not there. I'm pressing forward, but I'm not there. Boy, that gave me great consolation and comfort. And I'm not there. And there are other issues besides what I just got through sharing. But that's one of the issues. And do you see him changing your life? You've drunk of the living water. Jesus is there. Shouldn't we not only recognize that initial change, excuse me just a second, but as we continue to draw closer and drink deeper, shouldn't those changes continue to continually be affected? We live in a corrupt world. We live in bodies of flesh and sin, and everything is against us. The devil is against us. Our flesh is against a holy and a godly life. And the world is putting no pressure on us to be godly. To the contrary, the world wants to conform us into what it thinks we ought to be. And on and on we go. But Jesus is more powerful than all that is against us. And he'll still work changes in the life of his people. Wherever he is, changes take place. Now you can look at it in relation to salvation. Somebody says, well, what if I know I was saved and yes, my life did change. And yes, I did go forward, but I took some steps back. Then acknowledge it. Then acknowledge it. To try to live the Christian life and the energy of the flesh will wear out anybody. I used to stand on a chair at these moments, but I'm afraid of that anymore. But I really want to ask you to think about that. What about it? The changes, are they continuing to be made? Not just the initial change of when Jesus came into your life. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my life. Don't sing that if it's not happening. And be concerned if it's not happening. And maybe it'll be like Bill Marshall, who once he got saved and started for the Lord, he got disappointed, somebody failed him, some Christian turned out Christian, turned out to be a hypocrite, knocked him down, set him back, he started going back into the world, and then he realized how vain and empty that was, and he came back to the Lord. Maybe that's happened to somebody here. You were doing good at one time, and you were progressing, and Jesus was real in your life, and you were making changes, but you took some steps back. Well, confess it. Come back to Him. Humble yourself before Him. Admit, I tried to live this life in the strength of my own flesh. I tried to do this in my own ability. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You think you can roll up your sleeves and live the Sermon on the Mount? You can't. But I can do all things through, come on, you know the verse. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And that's where we're supposed to live. In utter dependence on Him. Speaking of the, I'm, I'm so far removed from my notes, there's no need even thinking about that again. But let me just tell you, the very first words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are these words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are the very first words. Those, those are the foundation words of the whole Sermon on the Mount. If you don't get that right, forget the rest of it. Blessed are the poor. Blessed is the person that realizes, I am utterly dependent upon God. I am utterly dependent on Christ in me. I cannot do this of my own strength. 
That's where the Christian life begins, and that's where it must be lived. And when you do, when we, when we will, those changes continue to take place. The change that happened there at that well wasn't the last change in that woman's life. I'll guarantee you that. I, I didn't get any assent at all over here. The changes that took place at the well, those weren't the last changes that took place in her life. Oh, no, not at all, not at all. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work. It would be presumptuous and just flat-out wrong for me to say, somebody in this room, everybody thinks you're saved and you're not. That would be wrong for me to say that because I don't know that at all. But I know you know that. If that's so or not, if so, you know who and where and all about it. And I'm just asking that your Holy Spirit would be at work so that if there is someone who acknowledges I've given regard to the Bible, I've given regard to Jesus, I've professed to be saved, but does he, is he gaining control of my life? Is he effectually changing my life? I'm thinking of some that I pastored for nigh on to 20 years. Lord, you know my heart, the things I'm thinking of right now. Nigh on to 20 years. And when they left and said, I'm not going back to Southwest Baptist Church anymore, they were dealing with the very same issues they were dealing with when I met them. Nothing ever changed now you you know this assembly you know every life individually you know this assembly collectively I'm asking your Holy Spirit would be at work if there's somebody that in fact needs to get saved I pray they would play the game no more and truly drink of the living water believe in Jesus put aside self, humble themselves in repentance and humility before you. If there are people in this room that know, no, I remember getting saved. I remember the changes that took place. I, I remember, oh yeah, those first years of my Christian life, oh wow, they were some of the best years of my life. Why would that be so? Why wouldn't these be the best years? Why wouldn't we be submitted to you in a way that you continue to effectually make changes in our life to make us more and more like Jesus? The image of your son, O oh God. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work. I have no idea who ought to leave their pew and come to the altar. I don't know. I have no idea those that should kneel right where they are and, and humble themselves before you and settle some matters tonight. I don't know, but I know you know. And I pray there'd not be a stiff neck, a hard heart, a shoulder pulled away in defiance, but there would be humility before you, O Lord. And might I pray on behalf of all this congregation for myself and for the beloved people, your own children that are in this room, Lord, Continue to change us. Continue to make us. Continue to mold us, O oh God, to be more like Christ. Oh, 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 
how desperately a lost, wicked world and worldlings need to see Christ in our lives. Bless this invitation for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?